The following resource is from Cambrian Park Baptist Church. For more information, please visit cpbchurch.org. Heavenly Father, we are here this morning because we believe that worshiping you is the most reasonable thing we can do. We only believe this, Father, because by your grace and mercy, your Holy Spirit made it known to us. And a faithful messenger at some point in time shared with us the truth of Christ, the fact that you are the creator of all that is seen and unseen, and that we stand before you in jeopardy of eternal damnation. I ask, Father, that you would bless your people here this morning as we look at this amazing text and contemplate not only your existence, but the salvation you offer us freely in Christ. Help us to see, Father, that Christianity is not only reasonable, it is the only worldview that makes any sense. And then make us faithful to proclaim that to one another and to all those in our mission field who have yet to see the truth of Christ. I ask, Spirit, that you would be kind to us this morning. It's hard to worship you well. Our weeks seem distracted and long. Our bodies, as of late, even as a church, have been battling many sicknesses. And we don't seem to want to love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so I pray, Father, that you would help me, a sinner, faithfully teach your word, and that you would help my brothers and sisters, sinners saved by grace, faithfully receive it. We, we don't want to be religious. We want to be changed. And so, Spirit, I ask that you would do that. I have no power. We have no power to change ourselves, but cause us to listen well that you might, through your Spirit, change us permanently. This morning, for your glory, I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Acts 17, if you're not there, open up there. We, are, we begin Acts 17, and we're in Philippi. And uh, Luke and, and Timothy are going to be left behind to continue the work the Holy Spirit has done in Philippi. But we're going to see Paul and Silas um, after, if you remember, if you were here last week, they were unjustly beaten and they were imprisoned. And the disciples send them on their way and they head west across Greece on the very famous Roman road, the Via Ignatia, which you've probably heard of. And so they go from Philippi, they go west about 100 miles to another very popular and powerful city by the name of Thessalonica. You also know that from the letter of First and Second Thessalonians. It's kind of cool seeing the history that surrounds these letters that you know so well. Uh, Thessalonica was the second largest city in Greece. It, it is still today, by the way. Um, they had over 200,000 people in that city. That's a large population in the first century Mediterranean culture. It was declared a free city in 42 B.C. by uh, Antonio and Octavian, and therefore it had uh, self-rule, which as we looked at with Philippi, there, was a lot of, there were a lot of blessings with that. It was a city that was powerful and populated. And so it was a perfect place for Paul and Silas to land and establish a stronghold for Jesus Christ. That's what they wanted to do as missionaries. They wanted to come in, establish a church, and proclaim the gospel in a place like Thessalonica and Philippi so that many would hear, repent, believe, be saved, and then take that message where? To the rest of the world. 
right? So this was a perfect place for a church. I would argue, my beloved, that we live in a very similar place today. Uh, San Jose, as you know, is the tech capital of the world. San Jose, this area, shapes the world in ways no other city does. And we also have a very large population. We're over one million people now, right here in our own backyard. And so we, if we have a missional mindset like Paul and Silas, we should want to establish a very strong church here, a stronghold for Christ right here, that the people in our backyard, the the lost who have never heard of Christ might repent and believe and be saved too. Um, we know that this cannot be done apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, and so we must pray fervently. And, not but, and we know that the Holy Spirit works through a variety of means. One means that we're going to look at today is reasoning, explaining, trying to persuade people of what is true. Right? We're not selling the gospel. We proclaim the gospel because the gospel and God and his word are true. Okay? So that requires us, if we're going to be serious about seeing this people group changed, it requires our spending time with them. It requires our getting to know them. It requires our reasoning with them, explaining to them that God is in fact real and they stand before him and will have to stand before him and give an account. I would argue, my beloved, it's not enough to offer a simple formula of the gospel. To go up to someone who's never heard of Christ, doesn't believe in God, and say, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. I do not believe that's effective. It is a true statement. But in the Western mind, going to say, repent of what? Believe in whom? And what kingdom are you talking about? We don't even know what kings are, other than what we see coming out of the British tabloids. Friends, our, our passage this morning offers us some, I believe, critical insight in evangelism and in missions, showing us the importance of reasoning well, of doing this, listen, proclaiming and explaining the gospel of Jesus Christ. Proclaiming and explaining. So let's follow Paul and Silas first to Thessalonica, and then we'll, we'll jump on the, the Via Ignatia again with them and head over to Berea um, so that we might, by God's grace, Cambrian Park Baptist Church, we might be better equipped to reason well with the lost here in, in this mission field in San Jose, California. Okay? Okay. So three things I want to consider. One, faith and reason. Number two, the enemy of reason. And number three, the nobility of reason. Faith and reason, the enemy of reason, and the nobility of reason. The theme of the sermon is simple. Christ followers proclaim and explain the gospel. Hmm? Christ followers proclaim and explain the gospel of Jesus Christ. Point number one, faith and reason. Look at verse one. <clears throat> now when they had passed through, <coughs> sorry, <clears throat> when they had passed through Amphipolis, Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where the synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, and, what, and as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So, this should be normal to you now. Paul arrives on scene. 
He finds a synagogue, right? We're talking about a Jewish Messiah, so he's going to speak to the Jews first. And he, he spends three weeks explaining to them, right? Reasoning with them that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he suffered, he died, he was buried, and he rose again in fulfillment of their scriptures, of the Hebrew scriptures. And, and Luke's very good here. He's going to be, um, have an economy of words. He's already told us <clears throat> what Paul preached in Acts chapter 13 in Antioch of Pisidia. The same thing, explanation and proof of the gospel itself. In fact, the Greek here literally says that Paul opened up and set forth his, his argument. What did he open up? He opened up the scriptures, and then he set forth. He said, let me show you from your own word, from your own Bible, that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the Messiah that you've been waiting for now for centuries. And so he, he teaches them, he shows them the prophecy of God's eternal plan to send a suffering servant. Right? So that was going to be the hang-up for them, that God was going to send a suffering servant who would pay for their sins through his death and then through his resurrection offer salvation and eternal life. In other words, the problem for the Jews in Thessalonica and we'll see in Berea was not a lack of revelation. The problem for them was a false perception of what they understood the revelation to be. Their false perception perception specifically of the Savior. Uh, The Jews, in other words, had reasoned incorrectly from their own scriptures. Most of the Jews at that time very likely believed that they did believe in a Messiah, a a, a Messiah, a Savior that would come. Um, They believed he was going to be of the line of David. They believed he was going to come like a conquering king, that he was going to throw off the the yoke of the Romans at this point in time, and he was going to establish the pride and the glory of Israel once again, where God's eternal king would sit forever and ever, and Israel would be in their prominent place again. So to hear Paul teach from their own word, from their own scriptures, that it would be God himself that would come was news to their ears. They were looking for a savior like the son of David, but not God himself. And for the Jews to hear Paul teach that this God, by the way, this Godhead has three eternally distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that it would be the second person of the Godhead, the Son himself, who would come in the flesh and willingly die for their sins would have been news to their ears. So as Paul says, that this Savior came and he died. He suffered, he paid for your sins. He died, he was buried, he rose. And oh, by the way, he's seated upon the throne. And oh, by the way, he offers salvation by grace through faith. Not your bloodline, not your law, not your works, but by grace through faith, through the Savior who's now seated upon the throne. That would have been news to their ears. All new, all good, glorious gospel news. But in spite of all this new revelation, that some of them obviously struggled with because then they go to try and and kill our missionaries. Um, The Holy Spirit worked effectually, did he not? He actually called, as we've talked about the last, he called several. Look at verse four. Some of them in Thessalonica heard the teachings of Paul and Silas and they were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Many were what? They were persuaded. Persuaded by what? Well, you're going to say, well, the Holy Spirit, of course. And of course, we believe that. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the natural man does not understand what? The things of the Spirit of God. God must show us that, of course. But they were persuaded by the reasoning of Paul. They were persuaded by Paul's argumentation from the Word of God. In fact, the Greek, it literally means to be persuaded. They became obedient. Jews and Gentiles, men and women, not because Paul 
And we know this. Paul test not because Paul was some master speaker where he could get up and use his fancy rhetoric to, to manipulate people. He argued from the Word of God, and they believed the Word of God because the Word of God is reasonable. Oh, I wish we could believe that, my beloved. It is imminently reasonable. Why did they believe? Are you ready for this? This is groundbreaking now because Christianity is reasonable. Christianity is reasonable. For decades now, we have heard the popular culture tell us that faith and reason do not go together. And yet I'm telling you that the Christian faith is imminently reasonable. This fracture between reason and faith, it goes all the way back to the 13th century by a beloved church father by the name of Thomas Aquinas. And he did not separate it like they separate it today. He, he talked about the concept of nature and grace or the natural world and the spiritual world. But his thinking moved its way through the Renaissance, through the Enlightenment, and into the modern age. And what we, what we have today is a complete separation between faith and reason. In fact, it's, it's hard to even use those two terms together without sounding foolish today. Hence the title of the sermon, Reasonable What? Reasonable Faith. Because our faith in Christ is imminently reasonable. So what has been the result for Western man? Western man has lost his ability to see faith as something that can be reasoned through, that is reasonable at all. Now before this separation, the natural universe was understood to be created by, listen, a reasonable God. Okay? And therefore using reason and science to study God's creation, people, animals, plants, rocks, the sea, the sky, the galaxies, scientists for centuries... This may shock you, if you were, especially if you were trained in the public schools. Scientists for centuries believed they could not only understand the natural world because a reasonable God created the world reasonably, but they could also learn something about God. Imagine that, studying science to see God. So well, we call that natural revelation. Scientists did that for centuries. You're not going to get that today in your public high school biology class. At least I don't think you're going to. And if you do, that teacher's not going to last very long. In other words, scientists for centuries have been singing the Psalms. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. The scientists for centuries sang Psalm 95. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land, and as we had a chance to say, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. You know, some of the greatest, some of the greatest, most worship-filled Christians in the history of the church have been scientists because they knew this to be true. In fact, the early 20th century philosopher A.N. Whitehead, he said this. He said, modern science is the product of Christianity. He's right. Modern science is the product of of Christianity. He argued that because God is a reasonable God, one could discover the truths of the universe by reason, by science, and, re- and the result would be knowing God even better. Even better. Um, in other words, the reasonable study of creation would increase the reasonable faith of Christianity because the two are not separable. They go together. Reason and faith always have gone together. As, the, as faith became more and more subjective in the 19th, 20th centuries, uh, no longer attached to the truths of the Bible, um, faith became irrelevant. And reason 
became enslaved to only that which could be observed and tested. Reason became enslaved. So reason became synonymous with the natural sciences, and faith became not only irrelevant, but an enemy of the natural sciences. And I'm sure you've heard that, have you not? That if you're going to talk about faith, you're not talking about reason, you're not talking about science. Because they say, we are told, reason is scientifically verifiable, faith is subjective. Reason is unbiased, faith is personal. Reason is fact, faith is feeling and experience. Those are all lies, my beloved. Those are all lies that have been perpetuated by our culture and made their way into the church. That philosophy is called positivism. Positivism. You've probably heard that before. That's a worldview that holds, listen, that every rationally justifiable assertion, every truth claim can be either scientifically verified or capable of logic and mathematical proof. Every truth claim is what the scientists say can be proven by that worldview. That means this. I can conclude that the sun produces enough energy in one hour to illuminate 20 2,800 trillion light bulbs in one hour. I can conclude that scientifically, but I cannot conclude that God created that sun and is light himself in the modern worldview. I can talk about the 1.2 million species of animals and plants that have been cataloged by mankind, but I cannot talk about God certainly as being the creator of those 1.2 million species and all that is seen and unseen not from the modern world view. In other words, my beloved, today, faith and reason are in opposition to one another. Now, Paul's battle in Thessalonica, it was not whether or not God exists. It was whether or not Jesus Christ was actually the Son of God. They were Jews. They obviously believed in the God of the Bible. He was trying to show them that Jesus Christ was their Messiah. And so they studied the Bible. They reasoned through it. Paul argued it. And many believed that it was true. Why? Because it is true. And it's as true today as it was then. In other words, it is a reasonable, rational, logical conclusion to believe that God is real and that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. That is logical. That is reasonable. I would argue that is scientific. Scientific as in with knowledge, true knowledge. Creation's testified to this. History has testified to this. Prophecy. Paul obviously spent time in Isaiah 53 when talking to these Jews. Testified to it. God's word testifies to it. The problem of evil. The hope of salvation. All truths testified to in our human experience. A truth the 21st century man, I would argue, desperately needs to hear and be convinced of today. A truth he needs to hear. You see, by removing God as the source of all knowledge and all truth and replacing God with science or naturalism, modern man has been thrust into a state of despair, a state of hopelessness. Do you wonder why when you look upon the world and you think, why why is this so hard? Why are so many people struggling so much? You take God out of the equation, not only does life not make sense, but it becomes unlivable. We are image bearers of God living in his created world. We know this. Deep down, we all know this. And so naturalism and positivism, all those things that we want to hold on to, other than the God of the Bible, cannot answer even the basic questions of life. Where did I come from? Why am I here and where am I going? 
You got lots of answers offered by those who reject God, and they're all bad answers. And you've heard them, and you, inside you go, I can't be right. That can't be right. Without God, my beloved, there are no fixed categories. You know that? Zero. Not for reason, not for knowledge, not even for language. Without God, language falls apart. Without God, we have no absolute morality of any kind. Morality is relative. In other words, murder is equivalent to love. If there is no God, right? Abraham Lincoln is no different than Adolf Hitler if there is no God because it's all relative. Without God, we have no explanation of any kind for good and evil. In fact, we can't even have those categories without God, and yet you know you experience good and evil every single day in your own heart, but you can't explain it if God does not exist. My beloved, we, without God, life becomes utterly purposeless, right? I mean, if you're, if you're here by chance, you're a product of evolution in time, you're here by chance, you die, and after you die, you cease to exist, then certainly the time that you are here ultimately must be purposeless. Because you, whenever we attach purpose to something ourselves, unless we're the creator, which we're not, well, self-initiated purpose is purposeless, right? Creators initiate purpose. Creators bring purpose to be. Without God, my beloved, I think this is probably the most tragic one, there's no explanation for love. You know that? If there is no God, that there is no love. And yet every single man, woman, and child either enjoys love, wants love, longs for love, expresses love from a very early age. And yet without God, you cannot explain it. Science can't explain it. They can't prove it. They can't verify it. They can't use the empirical method and test it. Let's test love. Can't do that. And when our evolutionary biologists and our evolutionary psychologists try to tell us that love is an evolutionary tool that came about by chance so that we as species could continue to live on, you got to laugh. I mean, that's a very sad statement. I don't think I'd want to be married to an evolutionary psychologist if that's, you know, what she was going to tell me her love for me was. Our romantic hearts, when we hear these things, our romantic hearts, which are made to love God and be loved by God and love one another, they go into immediate crisis mode when we hear foolishness like this. But if love is only a product of evolution, a consequence of chance, my beloved, then it doesn't fit, it doesn't fit a worldview without God either. It has no explanatory power other than let's just keep perpetuating our own species. Now, I don't know about you, but if I, if I were to give my wife a Valentine's Day card based upon that worldview, it'd read something like this. Dear Lori, I know deep down that you are nothing more than a product of billions and billions of years of trial and error. You are a grown-up primordial germ. I know you have no purpose. I know I have no purpose. And that ultimately we are no different than a dog, a rock, or the paper this card is written upon. I know that this love is nothing more than evolution in motion, keeping our species alive. But I will continue to lie to myself And believe that love is real because a world without love is not a world worth living in. Happy Valentine's Day, dear. That's what you got. That's what you're left with. Christianity, my beloved, is not just another worldview. It is the only worldview that offers mankind a reasonable and livable explanation for all of life. It's the only one. So first, we must see that faith in the God of the Bible is not just reasonable, It is essential. It is essential. Point number two, I pray you're still with me. 
What is the enemy of this reason? The enemy of this reason. <clears throat> Look at verse 5. <clears throat> but the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Verse 8, And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So the scene is going to be one that plays itself out all the way through the end of Acts. The gospel is proclaimed. Some believe, some don't believe. Those who don't believe, some of those who don't believe get really jealous, and they decide to exercise that jealousy and act in violence. The, the word jealous here literally means to burn with zeal. So they burned with zeal to go after Paul and Silas to get them for the proclamation of this particular gospel. Now these men were a bit creative. Notice they went to, they went to the men of rabble. That's the ESV translation. <laughs> These are guys who are itching for a fight. They're literally, they were loitering in the marketplace. They said, hey, you want to you do some dirty business? And they joined this group, and they said, yeah, let's go get them. So they go to Jason's house where the, uh, the missionaries were supposedly staying, but they're not there. So they said, well, let's get the host. They drag Jason before the civil authorities because they want some justice. They want something done about these um, rabble-rousers. Um, and they, can't, they come and they bring Jason and some of the other brothers before their accusers. And look at their accusations. They're turning the world upside down. Well, that's a vague charge. That'd be thrown out of court immediately, right? They're harboring these false troublemakers who were not there. So they couldn't be harboring those people who were not there. And the last thing actually did ring true. They're saying there's another king who, oh, by the way, his name is Jesus. Now, that, that caught the magistrate's attention, right? They so say you, 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 can't, you can't be in a place like this under Roman authority, and say there's another king other than Caesar. And so that was a full stop for them. It was, an actual, it was a true statement, even though Jesus said, this, I'm not king of this kingdom, this is not my kingdom. And it's likely that Paul and Silas and the others, they were not teaching that, that Christ came to overthrow Caesar. We know that. That wasn't the purpose of the church. But it was a statement, nonetheless, that would have caused them to, to put a halt to all these measures. And Luke tells us that they were disturbed, verse 8, that their authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. But unlike the magistrates in Philippi, don't you love God's common grace here? They don't, they don't beat them up and then throw them in prison. They say, you know what, we're going to, a much more tempered response. They took a security deposit from Jason and they said, listen, give us some money. We're going to put it on deposit. If there's another riot, we're keeping the money. So even though they didn't start the business, it was their responsibility to make sure it didn't happen again. And so this theme of the gospel being proclaimed, some believing and others unreasonably violent to the proclaimed gospel. It'll continue all the way through Acts. What I don't want us to miss here, though, is the one great enemy of biblical reasoning. Did you notice what it was? Self-glory. Look at verse 5 again. But the Jews, referring to those who did not believe the teachings of Paul and Silas, right? The Jews there who heard the gospel were what? They were filled with jealousy. They were jealous. They were jealous. Well, why were they jealous? Well, in verse 4, we're told that Paul reasoned through the Scriptures. He proclaimed the gospel. He explained it. And there were several who believed. And so they likely left that synagogue, and they went over to Jason's house. 
Because at Jason's house, they were having a very similar synagogue-like gathering where they were preaching and praying and declaring the glories of Christ. Right? Well, that's not good for that synagogue. That means you're losing membership. It means you're losing popularity. It means you're losing financial resources by these people leaving and following these new upstart Jewish Christians from the East, this Paul and this Barnabas and these people who are turning the world upside down. So rather than hearing Paul's clear reasoning from their scriptures that Jesus Christ is their Savior, rather than hearing that, they allowed their reasoning skills to be overcome by self-glory, by here specifically by jealousy. Right? They, didn't, they didn't want to hear the truth because the truth meant that it was going to deny them of power they had. Now this should not surprise us, my beloved. I hope it does not you. I imagine many of you before you came to a saving grace in Jesus Christ, when you heard the gospel, you didn't say, oh, that can't be true or that's not reasonable. Your first thought, if you were like me, was a fleshly response saying, well, that, I don't like what that means. Because if that's true, that means I have to change my life dramatically. Uh, if you were like me, then you, your flesh gave some steep competition to the proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord. They had heard it reasoned from their scripture and their glory, their self-glory got the best of them. When I first heard the gospel from the lips of a friend in my undergraduate studies, it made perfect sense to me. It made perfect, I thought that, that, that makes sense. And I wasn't raised in the church, but the Holy Spirit was already working in my life. But I also thought this, I thought, if that's true, then I can't be Lord of my life. And I didn't like that. If Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and God is real, and God is the most glorious being, then I can't be. I can't seek my own honor and my own glory and my own praise, and that's what I love to do before I came to Jesus. The gospel was perfectly reasonable to me, but I also understood that it meant I was supposed to follow Jesus and die to myself. And that meant that I had to die to all my selfish desires, my addiction to pleasure, my love for money, my pursuit of fame, my coveting of all that my neighbor had. Right, so it wasn't that the gospel was unreasonable when I heard it. It was that my self-glory overcame my reasoning skills to say that's true, therefore I will follow Christ. You see, my beloved, the great enemy of the reasonableness of God, the gospel, the scriptures, of Christ himself, it's not history, listen closely. It's not history, it's not truth, it's not philosophy, it's not science. It is self-glory. It is a desire to be like God. I mean, that's not... That's what ensnared Adam and Eve, was it not? They were created in the image of God to, to worship God, and yet they wanted to be what? They wanted to be like God. They were not satisfied with being image bearers. Now, if we see this struggle, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, all the way through the Old Testament, the New Testament, in our own lives, if we see this struggle with self-glory and reasoning well through God's word, then the right response for us for those in our mission field should be one of great compassion. I want you to listen, my beloved, because if your heart's like mine, there are times when I struggle with this. I work through a passage like this, and I get angry. I get angry how they treated Paul and Silas and, and Timothy and Luke. And I get angry they reject this gospel of grace that, that proclaimed the goodness of God, that he would send his son to die for sinners like us. And, and I, I begin to think in a, in a punitive fashion. I begin to think vindictively that God should judge them. It's a reprehensible thought for someone saved by grace since we were all in the same place. I, I believe, my beloved, that 
if you are able to reason through God's word because the Holy Spirit has enabled you to do that, then your only response to those who reject it, who are still seeking their own self-glory instead of glorifying God in Christ, should be one of weeping. It should be one of mourning. Yet you see your family and friends and your coworkers and your next-door neighbors pursuing a life that is not only schizophrenic because they don't know God, but one that is condemned as they stand judged already. I, I think it should lead us to, to weep and to pray for them and then to diligently reason with them, to find those opportunities to come alongside them and share the gospel in the context of the truth of their understanding and their worldview. Even when they seek our harm, maybe even more so when they seek our harm. The whole idea of God to most people today in the Western world is foolish. And yet Christ, you know, in Matthew, Matthew said something about Jesus in Matthew chapter 9 that I love. It's stuck with me for years. Matthew said that when he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I believe we live amongst a harassed and helpless people. We live amongst a people who reject that God even exists. Let alone, not just that, that God is not real, but that he doesn't exist at all. The Bible teaches that there are, there are two humanities, those who continue in rebellion against God and those who have been restored to God in a right relationship with Jesus Christ. It does talk about two humanities. But in another sense, the Bible talks about one humanity, does it not? I mean, it talks about us all coming. In fact, look at verse 26. Drop your eyes down. We're going to see this uh, next week. Paul's talking about their commonality in Adam. Verse 26, that he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And so, as descendants of Adam, we should look upon our common ancestors and look upon our brothers and sisters here in the church and those outside the church and, and rightly be concerned about their well-being. Rightly concerned. Uh, Francis Schaeffer said this, he said, emotionally, as well as intellectually, we must look at the man before us as, listen to this, our, right, they're image bearers, our counterpart. And then he said, he is lost, but so once were we. And that changes everything, doesn't it? Because you were once outside, and you rejected God, and you rejected Christ, and then God, by grace, through faith, made you alive. All those in your mission field, who refuse to hear the reasonableness of the existence of God and the gospel of grace and Christ as Savior, they can still be saved by grace. They're not your enemy. They're your mission field. They're not your enemy. They're your mission field. And that means that we are called to reason with them. Just like Paul and Silas and Thessalonica and then we were to call to reason with them to go and be patient and kind and loving even when they're really mean to us. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, Jesus said, right? And spending that time to answer hard questions. Where did I come from? That's a big question today. You say, well, you came from God. I don't know. I don't even know who this God is. How do I know there's a God? Why am I here? Well, your purpose is simple. It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I don't even believe in this God. How can I serve my purpose in worshiping him if I don't believe he's real? You say, well, what people really want to know is where am I going? What's my end? Is it dirt? Is it the tomb? Or is there life after death? All these questions that this culture struggles with, 
I would say, my beloved, <clears throat> I would say in, in the context of human history and worldviews, the Western world, the Western mind, is so, are some of the most warped minds in human history. Right? For most of human history, mankind believed in God as some God because we know that God is real. But in the modern mind, we say, oh, no, there's no God at all. Well, that's, that's about as crazy a statement as you can make. That's about as out of touch with reality as you can be to say that there is no God when he is the creator of all that is seen and unseen. All right, so number one, I hope you see that faith is not opposed to reason. Number two, self-glory is the enemy of reason. I'll give you one more, lastly, the nobility of reason. Look at verse 10. The nobility of reason the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night. Remember the, the uprising in Thessalonica? They said, we've got to get these guys out of here. So they send Paul and Silas to Berea. Berea was also another very well-known city at the time. It was about 50 miles due west of Thessalonica. And so they send uh, Paul and Silas off there, latter part of verse 10. And when they arrived, they went in the Jewish synagogue. Here's, the, here's the, the missionary protocol. These are standard operating procedures for our missionaries. Right, verse 11, now these Jews, the Jews in Berea, Luke tells us, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Now that word nobility, we don't use much in the English language. We just don't. Um, and if we do, we usually think of it in the context of kings and queens, which has its, its uh, origin there. Paul's using it here to talk about the character of the Berean Jew. The character of the Berean Jew. Unlike their brothers in Thessalonica, look at the latter part of verse 11, they received the word, the Berean Jews, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. If what things were so? If Jesus Christ really is the Messiah. Right? That's what Paul and Silas, that's what they were teaching. Is he the Messiah prophesied in their scriptures? And they were no, more noble than the Thessalonians because instead of becoming jealous and seeking self-glory and becoming defensive with this new proclamation, and it was new, I mean it was new, Oh, by the way, God, the Son of God, in the triune God, came down and became a man. He bore flesh. <laughs> and then he lived a sinless life, and he died a sinner's death. He was buried, he rose, he ascended to heaven. These are all new revelations. They're old because they're in the scriptures, but they had not heard them or at least discerned them properly. Okay? <coughs> <clears throat> See what happens when I get excited and I can't talk, so I'll... <clears throat> it says that they received the gospel eagerly and they examined it daily. They examined it deeply. Um, and their eagerness and their examination testified to the fact that they believed, they obviously believed that God was real. I mean, we're talking about Jews here. But they also believed that God had revealed himself in such a way that they could go to their scriptures and discern truth. They could hear a truth claim. Instead of being afraid and becoming defensive, saying, I want to hear that, I don't, I don't want to believe that, they wanted to hear, they were eager to receive this teaching and then they took it back and they, they ground it in the word of God itself. And I love that, my brother. I, I thought how good it would be for us to not be afraid of true claims that are made, whether they're true or they're false, right? The Christian has no reason to fear. God is real. God has made himself known. And by the way, we have his revelation in this book. So every single truth claim made by any single person, from the peasant to the greatest philosopher of mankind, can make the claim and you can say, let's see. Let's examine that. I'm eager to hear it. Bring it to me. And then we can open our book together as a church and we can discern truth. There's no place for fear for the Christian. 
by any claim of any kind made by any man in any century. Even today, with those who claim the royal priesthood of the sciences. Look at verse 12. Many of them therefore believed. They heard the gospel. They searched the scriptures. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. In other words, they didn't make the mistake of some of the Jews in Thessalonica and allow their self-glory and their jealousy to overcome their reasoning skills. They remained, what, reasonable in their faith. And they did not make the catastrophic mistake of modern man and separate their faith from reason. They held those two together, and they were what? They were, listen, they were true truth seekers. True truth seekers. Well, what is that? A true truth seeker, someone says, I really, really want to know the truth, and I'm going to go to the source of the truth, who is God and his word, to discern it. A true truth seeker, as opposed to someone who wants to substantiate or simply uphold what he wants to believe. That's not a claim, my beloved, listen. That's not a claim modern man who rejects Jesus Christ can make. The scientist who rejects the God of the Bible and Christ as Savior is not a true truth seeker. They cannot be because God is truth. So it's not a claim that the modern scientist who rejects Christ can make. They were not like the Bereans. What a blessed time for Paul's ministry, was it not? I mean, how incredible. He goes, he goes, he lands in this synagogue in Berea, and they're hungry. They want to hear this truth, and they take it, and they go together, and there's a, there's a sense this was, being, this was taking place in community. They didn't just divide and then come to their own conclusions. They reasoned together in God's word and came to this understanding that Jesus Christ is the Savior. It didn't last long. You notice that. The sweetness in Berea didn't last long. Look at verse 13. When the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, (laughs) talk about persistence. They're persistent. They're traveling to persecute. I wish that we were that persistent in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're persistent. They came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. That drill worked. Go to the marketplace, find some rabble-rousers that want to fight. Come join us. Let's get into a fight. Then the brothers immediately, verse 14, sent Paul off on his way. <clears throat> to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. They remained there in Berea. And those who um, conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, which we're going to pick up there next week. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed with Paul. So Timothy and Silas stay in Berea, doing the work the Holy Spirit's doing there. Isn't that, isn't that cool? So we have, we have Luke is still up, very likely, in, in Philippi. Um, Timothy and Silas are going to stay here in Berea. Um, and Paul goes to Athens. My beloved, I, I want to encourage us to be like the Bereans. I want us to be, you've probably heard that term before, a Berean-like spirit, a Berean-like church. Well, what is that? That's, that's people who are not afraid of truth claims, but know that we truly believe that God is truth, and we have his revealed truth in the word, and therefore we can examine these things deeply without fear. Um, eagerly taking anything that anyone says of any kind. It doesn't matter what it is. Someone can say something about gender today or marriage or critical race theory or politics or economics. You know what? Scriptures teach to it. They teach to it. If you say, I don't, I don't believe that, then it's just because you probably don't know the Scriptures well enough to know it. But what a great say, well, then I want to know it. I want to start here. Um, we don't have to be afraid of any truth claim because, one, we have the Word of God to test every claim. We have it. If you don't have it, I'll get you a Bible. Number two, we have the Holy Spirit and the church 
to evaluate these truth claims in the context of the word. And number three, I pray, I pray it's your desire as a Christian to know truth, right? We are called to worship God in spirit and in truth, not a lie. So we want to know truth. We want to know all truth because all truth comes from God. All true truth comes from God. And therefore we want to know it because the more truth we know, the better we can worship God in spirit and in truth. I would also argue, my beloved, that we want to know truth, all truth that God has revealed so that we can be good Bereans with the lost in our mission field, with those who are still steeped in darkness to the degree that they reject the idea of God altogether. Remember, the artificial separation between faith and reason has led to the 21st century man living in a state of utter despair. I had several things I was going to explain this to you. I thought, this is, this, I pray as a Christian with open eyes, this is obvious to you. We live in a time and place. Modern man has summarily rejected the idea of God altogether. And what we see is catastrophic despair. Everywhere we turn, everywhere you look, look at marriages, look at the schools, look at politics, look at your finances, look at it all. And say, how is this happening? Why are we in the state of despair that we're in? It's real simple. Take God out and things collapse. Take God out, and we live like crazy people because God is real and he created all that is seen and unseen. The 21st century man lives in a world of particulars. You know that? We have data, we have evidence, we have facts, but we have no creator, no universal God that brings all those truths together. And therefore, they're just... All the data, all the information, it just swirls around out there without anything ultimately having purpose or meaning. And that's why an honest atheist will say that there is no purpose to life. An honest atheist will recognize that. The famous psychologist Carl Jung was right when he said, listen to this, every man struggles with two things. One, the external world with its structure. That's all the matter, all the data, all the science. And those things that well up from inside him Love, virtue, purpose, faith, hope. Without God, we can't reconcile those. Without God, love, virtue, purpose, faith, hope become purposeless. They become nonsense. Every man struggles with these two things, the outside world and the inside world in our own hearts, except for whom? Except for the Christian. You don't struggle with that. You don't separate faith and reason. You don't separate what's on the outside and what's on the inside. You don't separate nature from God. And therefore, you have truly a brilliant, reasonable, holistic worldview. Only Christianity, no other world religion, no other worldview offers that. Only, oh my goodness, my beloved, do you realize that? Only Christianity offers the ability to understand and live in accordance with truth. That's why Peter admonished the church so strongly in 1 Peter 3.15. You heard Kirk read it. Peter said, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Right, so here's worship of God. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for what? What do they ask? They want to know the reason for the hope that is in you. They want to know that. They see the world, they see their own hearts, it doesn't make sense. They see you see the world, and you know your own hearts, and it makes sense. What is the reason for this? Tell me, please. Tell me. We want to be like Paul and Silas. 
in Thessalonica, in Berea. We want to reason from God's word what we know to be true. But now, listen closely. Unlike Paul and Silas, we're not going to a group of Jews who already believe that God exists, most of us. That's probably not your primary mission field. You're not even going to a people group that actually believe that reason and faith exist together. They did in the first century. And so you're going to people who say, not only is God not real, but don't talk to me about my faith because faith is not reasonable, which means we need to do something called pre-evangelism. Pre-evangelism. So what is that? Pre-evangelism is spending time with people, getting them to see some basic things that you assume to be true because you already know Christ. In the Bay Area, there are a few things, and I'm going to close, so stay with me here. I'm not going to go into uh, an, an hour diatribe on all the apologetic techniques you can use. We're going to do that, though, in our, 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 our faith and practice um, time together. But I, I do want to point out a few things for you here. If you're going to witness to someone here in the Bay Area, they're going to struggle with a few primary things. Those, the most unchurched, de-churched people group in this country. Number one, uh, they're not going to know that they're in crisis. You want to show them that. Someone without Christ is in crisis. Number two, they don't believe there's a, a, a personal God. <laughs> you want to show them that. And number three, that they are morally responsible to that personal God. These are basic things that if you go to <clears throat> someone at work or your neighbor and, and you, you just share the gospel blandly, you say, you know, uh, Christ is the Son of God, God is holy, you're a sinner, repent and believe, they're going to look at you with this dazed and confused look. I know I did. I did 35 years ago. I heard that, and it bounced off me like, like a rubber ball. Unless these issues are addressed first, it's really hard to hear the gospel, right? So pre-evangelism is laying that ground. So what, what is the crisis for modern man? Well, we are image bearers living in God's world. That's fact. That's fact. But the non-Christian doesn't know that, and so they live in a constant state of crisis. The non-Christian and if you were old enough, before you came to Christ and you were trying to answer some of these big questions, where did I come from, why am I here, where am I going, it was crisis mode. And at some point in time, God brought that crisis to a peak through the Spirit and you repented and you believed and you put your faith in Christ. Every single person who does not know the God of the Bible through the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is in crisis. Now they might not even know they're in crisis, they might have sheltered themselves to such a degree that their crisis is not something they even can recognize. Now, here's what I want to encourage you. It's part of your gospel duty to reason with them, to show them the crisis that they're in. Go to them and explain to them why their life, apart from God, is truly unlivable. Talk about love. Talk about morality. Talk about history. Talk about creation. There's so many things you can bring to bear upon this crisis the modern man experiences and it's not a game listen we're we're called to dismantle what they've sheltered themselves in it's not a game and it'll be very painful for them but we're supposed to do it with gentleness and love because we want them saved i would argue it's a it's a necessary step for the 21st century man who has sheltered himself in naturalism philosophy mysticism escapism, we've surrounded ourselves by the idols of money, success, people, politics. We are well sheltered. And so we got to go in and we got to take the roof off that shelter and let the reality of, of God come in. Uh, Francis Shaver put it like this, listen, he said, the Christian lovingly 
must remove the shelter and allow the truth of the external world and of what man is to beat upon him. To beat upon him. When the roof is off, each man must stand naked and wounded before the truth of what is. That's what we're supposed to do. So you're not going to do that and leave them there, right? That would be evil, right? You want to have them see that their worldview is not livable, okay? And then you want to bring God into the equation. You want to show them that God is true. So one, show them a crisis. Number two, we must reason with a non-Christian that God really does exist. My beloved, I, I know you take this for granted. Our entire faith and the gospel itself is predicated on the fact that God is real. That there is the great exodus, I am. That he really did create all that is seen and unseen and made himself known to mankind, that he's revealed himself. Creation, history, scriptures, and most perfectly in his son. What good does it do to say to a man who does not believe in God, Christ is Lord and Savior? What good does it do to a man to say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? And he says, I don't believe in God. Why would I believe in this hypothetical, mythical God's son? Or maybe they believe in some mystical, existential, non-personal God. You're going to run into that in this area, certainly. We must reason well with the lost that the personal God of the Bible not only exists, but it's made himself known. We must reason that with them, that he is real and he's made himself known, and therefore they no longer have to live in a state of crisis. They don't have to try to figure out questions that they can't answer apart from the God of the Bible. So we must reveal to them their crisis, that God is real, and the last one, and I'll close, that they're in a moral crisis, their moral dilemma, right? Life's unlivable without God. God is real, oh, and God is holy. God is real, God is holy, and man is sinful. In order for someone to be saved, that person must see and believe in their heart and mind that God is holy and they are sinners and they need to be saved. They need to be forgiven of their sins. That they as finite creatures have sinned against an infinitely glorious and holy God and therefore they are unable to remove their guilt. You must bring real guilt in this dialogue for someone to really be slaved. Help them see there's no human solution. There's no way they can overcome that sin. That judgment is all that awaits unless what? Unless God intervenes. Unless God does something to forgive them of their sins and restore that relationship. My beloved, that's the place you want them. Show their life, living their life without God is a crisis life. It doesn't make any sense. It is truly schizophrenic in the most literal sense of the word. Show them that God really does exist. There is a creator of all that is seen and unseen. And show them, my beloved, that they are sinners before this holy, thrice holy, good God. Then bring the gospel. And oh, are they going to want it? If the Spirit is pleased, they will want it. They will devour it. They'll be like the Philippian jailer we saw last week. Remember? God makes himself known. I mean, this Philippian jailer, he must have been in crisis mode. What's he doing? He's sitting in the innermost cell of the prison. That's the consummation of his life. And then what? The earth moves. Right? God makes himself known. And this man realizes that he needs to be saved. So what does he do? He goes to Paul and Silas and he says what? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This man was in the right place and he got the right message. They said, believe in the Lord 
and you will be saved, you and your household. Trust in the finished work of God's Son on the cross, and you will be saved. My beloved, we've got to do some really good pre-evangelism here. Not with all people, but most people. You've got to talk about their crisis. You've got to talk about the existence of God. You've got to talk about the moral dilemma. And then the gospel will be received with great joy. No man can become a Christian unless he understands what Christianity is saying. That's a simple statement. No man can become a Christian unless he understands what Christianity is saying. And who will explain, explain Christianity to the lost if not Christians? How are they going to know? How are they going to know what we believe and why we believe? How are they going to know that our faith is reasonable if we don't tell them why it's reasonable? They will not. They cannot. My beloved, your faith is the only reasonable view that exists. It's it. Don't allow your self-glory to get in the way of hearing God's word clearly and then proclaiming and explaining it to others. God's image bearers, those who are of our kind, are in crisis and waiting to hear these truths. They're waiting. The only question, my beloved, is, will we love them enough to reason with them as God reasoned with us? Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, God said to you, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Will you reason with the lost in your mission field? Will you? Let's pray we will. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful you've made these truths known to us. There is no place for pride or self-exaltation in the body of Christ. We only know these things to be true because you've made them known to us through your Spirit. We thank you for being a reasonable God that created a reasonable universe and made reasonable people to discern truth. We thank you, Lord, that we can take all truth claims and receive them with great joy like the Bereans and test them in accordance with your word and then walk in righteousness. I pray, Father, you would do that for us, this church, Cambrian Park Baptist Church, that you would cause us to be reasonable Christians, that we would not only want to know our word well, to live in light of truth, but share it with those who have no idea that you even exist. Father, give us a right heart for the lost, Cause us to see that we were once there too, image bearers, lost, not knowing you, not reconciled through Christ. Give us a heart for every single person that we know that does not know you and then open our mouths that we might reason with them well, that they too might join this great family of yours. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. Cambrian Park Baptist Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit cpbchurch.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.